Welcome to the latest episode of High Stakes. I'm Paige Soya, Managing Director of K Street Capital. And today's episode is going to be about the new epoch of climate tech. And it's going to be my favorite episode because two of my favorite people in the world are on here right now. Kieran and Logan have both been doing deals with me for many years. And all three of us have been founders and gone through our own climate journeys and and become investors. And so I think there's a lot of interesting things to talk about having seen the evolution of both of you. And I'll also just say, like, I was an anti-climate person when Logan met me back in the day. And he turned me over. True story. True story. And obviously now we're married. So that adds to the fun here. But I'll stop and maybe you guys can give a quick intro and then we'll get into the fun stuff. Kieran, you want to go first? Sure. Yeah, it's great to be here, guys. Um, Kieran Petraju, I'm the founder and CEO of Arcadia. We're a nine-year-old utility energy market data platform serving companies all across electrification, connect to all the, the really ugly utility data that's locked up across thousands of utilities around the, the, the world now. I started up in public policy, built a company in commercial energy management before this, and yeah, founded Arcadia in DC where I met, where I met you guys. And I'm Logan Soya. I was the founder and CEO of Aquacore, moved up to Georgetown to do my MBA. And through that journey, realized I had a passion for climate and energy efficiency, sold uh, Aquacore services to large institutional owners of real estate. So got to kind of really get to know the real estate landscape. Why does real estate care about energy and energy efficiency? Had a lot of lessons learned in that, both in terms of working with large sort of financial stakeholders of real estate. And uh, since then, the company was acquired last October. And so I really enjoy getting to know the wider spectrum of all things climate, picking up my head and just digging in, being curious about all things. Yeah, look forward to this conversation. Yeah, congrats, Logan. Also, Kieran, I don't think you said this, but uh, oh, we invested in Arcadia when it was a seed stage company and it's now a unicorn. So it is super exciting to see that whole journey. And and we'll talk about that in a second. But so let's start by talking about atoms versus bits in climate tech investing. And for those that don't know the tech jargon, bits is meant to mean software and atoms is meant to mean like the physical world. So hardware and things like that. And so there's been a lot of talk in the industry about how we've overinvested in software and and not enough in hardware and in atoms. But from for you guys as investors, putting on your investor hat, maybe talk a little bit about that and what you're seeing in climate tech today. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll go first. I mean, it, it is true that the the biggest companies in the world are a mix of software and hardware, uh, whether it's Tesla, Apple. Google has a large hardware business, whether or not uh, people recognize it as, as a core part of the business. But, you know, all of climate tech, is is going to have to run through atoms, right? I I have a view that there's only there's sort of three broad buckets of like pure software plays in climate. That is like data, which is what we're doing uh, at Arcadia, fintech related applications, which I think we'll talk about later, and then workflow software. And that that's like my like those are like the three, in my angel investing at least. That's like where I've looked at where I think there could be really big outcomes that are pure play software. But even at Arcadia, like all of our customers are deploying distributed generation. They're using our software to install community solar, solar storage, heat pumps, et cetera. So it's sort of unavoidable to have to invest in businesses that cross both. And frankly, that that's what Aquaphor was, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. So on my end, uh, we ended up having a hardware data capture method. So I originally thought I would be, you know, uh, maybe a software only play, but it turned out that for the direction that Aquacore went in, it made sense to have a hardware component, at least for data capturing. Now I might distinguish hardware for data collection purposes versus like real hardware to actually decarbonize, right? Like a, a solar installation or something like that. But I, I think Karen's right. Like climate is a physical problem. So we have to solve these solutions with real physical services and good. And there's just no way around it. I think in the new data economy, there's, there can be trade secret algorithms and things like that, that could be a core piece of that formula for a lot of businesses. But that means that you're going to have to be a goods and services business that also is literate in data and knows how to use data, not a, you know, not a goods and services businesses that doesn't know how to use it. Um, putting my investor hat on for a second, I think that I have recently felt like there are more VCs and investors that are taking an interest in Adams based businesses. And there's sort of this acknowledged premium that we're going to have to figure it out. But I, I also think that like the financial products are unclear to me. I think the VC model, I have questions as to if that's going to be the right financial product for those kinds of businesses. And I would love to hear the opinions around the table of like, have you seen other financing vehicles, other methods to address this kind of high capex component that SaaS businesses didn't have? Yeah, um, I feel like you seeded that for me, Logan, but we invest in a lot of companies that have both too. And also my my fintech company had a hardware component. But like when I look back at those days, like hardware is so much harder to scale and build than software is by itself. And so as an investor, I don't like it as much. Like I would prefer the software plays if we can find the good ones. But we do look at the the, the combination of both with sometimes. Uh, and I'll say because we invest in regulated markets, we see a lot of, to your question, Logan, are you thought about other financing models? Like if a company can get government money for building out the R&D or, or scaling the hardware piece of what they're doing, coupled with venture capital money, which can then really be used to propel the business itself and the software component, which is easier. That's the kind of thing we like. Uh, but we just don't see it that often, obviously, because startups don't understand the government and there's not it's not super easy for them to to align their timeline and the capital and the trajectory with what the government's doing at any given moment. I'll, I'll just add that I've seen the model where and a lot of these climate tech companies are relatively new, but with their seed or series A, they're doing the initial sort of science and projections of what their cost curve could look like. And then maybe even with that, A, they're putting some equity into their first project where they're getting LPO money from the Department of Energy or they're getting grant money. But then they can create asset codes and op codes where you can project finance hardware. But yeah, it depends on the company. I think there are now, what I've seen, a lot more specialty financing entities. I mean, Generate Capital is a great example of one that is willing to look at like weird new stuff that banks aren't really financing yet. So it's good to see that along with the fact that we have like industrial policy and, and a lot, a lot more money, uh, back, you know, first time projects. Yeah. So it's, it sounds like it's almost like the new startups in climate tech need to be aware that they have to pick the right financing vehicle. And like VC is not just like a one fits all for 
the climate tech, most climate tech startups are, it's just not going to work that way. They have to be literate in these other financing models and have maybe more complicated structures where they break out into subsidiaries and things like that. Uh, one, one comment, I, I did a little homework before this podcast, and there was a report that I read that actually said that for solar installations, 66% of the solar cost is actually soft cost, not the hard cost. So there's still economic um, efficiency gains that are material in terms of reducing GNA, sales and marketing, procurement. You know, there, there's still like, and, and I think I think there's a maturity kind of like curve that, you know, a lot of these businesses, like I said, are not data literate. So they, they are still using Excel sheets. They haven't really gotten up that curve yet. And so there's definitely opportunity there, I feel like. Yeah, I agree. And how are you guys thinking about over the next 10 years, how you see this evolving? I think from an investor perspective, um, like it's hard enough for founders to sort of understand venture capital and then think through like all the different government grants and LP, you know, loan programs and, and project finance. I think this is where investors can actually like be differentiated is if they can help a founder through all these different funding cycles for for example, for like a direct air capture company or a new hydrogen business where they're, they're going to have different pools of capital to figure out. But I think, yeah, I think Logan's right. Like the model is just going to change for founders. It's not just going to be venture ABCD rounds. Uh, they're going to be looking for, for different pools of capital and that's going to become easier. Um, there's a role for, for investors to play to help, help founders navigate all that. Cause, uh, not everyone, yeah, it, it's complicated, right? Um, it's very complicated. Yeah. yeah. Especially yeah. startups that aren't in DC and don't know a lot of the programs or how they can, how they can take advantage of them. Yeah. Have you, so I guess generate is a good example of that, right? Where they're, they've done the homework, they're willing to get a little bit more creative on the back end, And, you know, as a founder, that would be great. Right. Cause like my job is to try to figure out my core competency, not to be a finance expert, hopefully. Right. Like. How are, how are you going to be a tech expert? Or yeah, and expert not, and and not dilute expert. yourself into oblivion because you're raising equity for for your your assets. Um, yeah, for the exactly. whole inventory or something. Yeah. Right, right. I also just hope that I mean, there's been so much built around software and software stacks and tools and things like that. It's really easy now for founders to start companies and to to just develop things. Whereas, like, if you want to actually build a piece of hardware, that doesn't exist. Like our manufacturing. Uh, call it infrastructure or tools, resources is not built that way. So it's much harder. And I, I hope over the next 10 years that changes. Uh, but same. I think that will definitely change, right? Yeah. Seeing all these announcements of new onshoring manufacturing. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, with that, I think that becomes like a nice feedback loop as more and more founders are, are willing to take risks on uh, new hardware as well. Oh, exactly. So let's talk a little bit about climate fintech. I'm not asking a question. I'm just kind of looking at you, Logan, because I feel like you and I talk about this all the time. <laughs> sure. And Kieran, I mean, we all do. Yeah. Well, I, I, think, I think that's a natural segue from our points about atoms versus bits, right? Like climate has this natural asset heavy aspect to it. And so people have needed to figure out like, okay, how do I shift the value, shift the money need? to align with the value as opposed to having this upfront investment. And so we saw some success with that with solar and, and maybe Kieran, I'd love for you to hear kind of like your more sophisticated take on that. But, um, 
you know, I, I think the reason why climate fintech is one of the earlier to the sort of gates um, opportunities as investors now and, and as potential new startup ideas is that I think there's this growing recognition that climate risk is financial risk, right? And if I'm an investor, I have a 5, 10, 15, 20 year time horizon on my investment and I now need to underwrite it and I need to account for it it being climate, whether that's like physical asset risk or transition risk. And so I think it's creating this sort of new demand. Like investors are saying, I want data. Investors are saying, I want financial products or ways to create financial products that can, you know, account for these things that people are pushing me to want to invest in, but do so while maintaining my fiduciary and lowering risk, et cetera. And so it's an interesting space right now. Uh, and I think it, it's, I don't know. It, I, I'm very fascinated by it. And it's one of the reasons that I, one of the things I've been spending a lot more time in, you know, post aquacore and I'm going to be doing a little bit of a, a blog posting a, a, along my journey to learn along a, a website called the rewire.com. You're welcome to follow along, but, um, it's, uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot, it's going to take a lot to rewire this economy to account for, for carbon and, and climate and, and climate fintech is a, is square in the middle of it. Right. That's, that's a big question arc in my mind, but I think it's an exciting space to be in. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would add like, there's, there, there's going to be a ton. I mean, you're exactly right. There's going to be a ton of new financing opportunities around companies figuring out their, their embodied carbon and their carbon footprint. I think specifically in, in my world around energy, the broad application is that I like to talk about is, is we're taking CapEx, upfront CapEx and shifting it to long-term OPEX. And that is, that's huge, right? That's kind of what happened to fossil generation over the last hundred years is, you know, uh, and you made, you made the point like solar, you don't have to pay $50,000 up front. You can just pay, you know, a couple bucks in savings on your utility bill for 20 years and pay off the asset, get tax credits, et cetera. But there are all sorts of other new financing entities popping up that are helping obviously with tax credits, with grants, getting money faster, you know, so I think finance is sort of the, you know, if done right, it, it's the accelerant for all of the, the billions of like machines that we need to install and nobody wants to pay for all of that up front. Right. Um, mm -hmm. and so that, you know, the different ways to underwrite and to make that happen, I mean, in our business, so we, we are the largest community solar manager in the country. And this is a developer building a single project, but using our software to deliver the value to, to say hundreds of customers, you know, there's, there's even an aspect of being able to underwrite a customer that is like lacking. It's one of the things we brought mm -hmm. in this market is we could look at a customer and say, they paid their power bill on time. This is how much it was. Um, so there's so many different aspects of climate finance that I think help it's, you know, who's who's sort of the off-taker, who's deploying the asset, how you finance all the ancillaries, like depreciation and tax credits. So it's just a monster market that, frankly, software can be uh, a great enabler, you know, creating marketplaces and, and making sure this, the money flows where it needs to go. Yeah, we're always looking for companies in that space. There aren't as many as, as we'd like to see, I think, at this point, but there are some. And I don't know, I just, I when you think about even offshore wind, like we're looking at a company in an offshore wind space. And a lot of those projects are obviously underwater right now, traditional offshore. So like however we 
we really need to, however founders are thinking about the vehicles and, um, and the structures that can be put in place to make sense of that is really going to drive, I think, a lot of this, these projects and the, the, you know, the atoms forward, really. You know, that's interesting because I think the investors broker in, in trust and in predictability, right? And so it's like, if there's innovations and products that can be formed to help investors underwrite, you know, like, I think everybody generally gets like that you're supposed to be deploying these assets to transition to fossil free economy. And everybody gets that there's money to be made if I can put my bet in the right place. But there's this sort of like missing middle gap of like, okay, like I understand it in concept, but when I actually have a a project in front of me, how do I underwrite it? And I think, Kieran, I like your example because there's this extra layer of complexity, right? Like, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but back in the day, like you could only underwrite a solar project if a giant business could like guarantee 20 years worth of power purchases. Rock solid credit and yeah. Yeah. And so like hopefully data and cli- a fintech climate tech product can sort of like low, you know, get the risk profile down. Even if you're not selling to a 20 year contract, you can sell to 200 homes or whatever it is and still get some level of assurance as an investor that it's a worthwhile investment. Right. Is that that's kind of what you're describing? Right? It's 100 percent. I mean, we were the first company to say you can sign up for community solar with no contract and no credit check. If you can imagine, this is like, you're not putting a power plant on someone's roof, right? To ask for a credit check and get someone to sign a 20-year contract, like those are the yeah. soft costs you were referring yeah. to, right? That are are huge. So we were able to like, I mean, it's exactly sort of what you were describing. We were able to cut out almost all the soft costs that the competition had said, oh, we need this to underwrite. And we said, no, mm-hmm. you actually don't. You just need to understand data from their mm-hmm. power bill exactly to understand if this customer is actually uh, a good off taker or not. And we've proven that since, right? There's a reason being able to scale this up too is like, you know, a customer can sign up in two minutes and not have to prove that they have an 800 FICO. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. That's so cool. I like it. Yeah. We need more so, of that. <laughs> yeah. We definitely need more of that. And speaking of that, Kieran, wondering what advice you might have for founders thinking about building things in the climate fintech space. And I say that because I get decks all the time from founders that put your face on them. And then I ask them and they're like, oh, Kieran's an advisor or an investor or whatever. And then I find out that's not true at all. <laughs> so it's a very Ooh, God. hilarious. You should tell me more about that. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, when I dig in, they realize that we we know each other quite well. They're they're like, oh, oh, I met him one time and he said it was a good idea. <laughs> I look, I'm obsessed with this space. I think, um, you know, specifically around energy and the work we do. I think the utility bill is actually like one of the more as like as boring and lame as it sounds. The utility bill might be like the most important medium to deliver energy products and decarbonization products. And there's all this rich data that lives in there that allows us to underwrite. You know, we've done things like on bill financing in the past. It like it is the relationship with the customers, frankly, that that bill. And and most, you know, energy products end up being financial products. Obviously, you're delivering electrons in one way or another, but you know Google famously pioneered, at least with wind and solar, these virtual power purchase contracts. But the electrons are not actually like even on their grid, but it's a financial structure that enables a new project to get built, right? And right. Uh, and so I'm I'm uh, maybe that's why I like every time I hear a, a founder 
talk about something related to climate fintech, I, I get excited. I will say there's like a thousand new opportunities around the Inflation Reduction Act because it, it is, you know, literally a series of grants, debt, tax credits that, as we all know, will likely uh, somewhat inefficiently be delivered and where oh, software yes. can be really helpful. I mean, there's one company that just comes to mind called Enduring Planet that is literally just factoring. Like if you get a grant from the government, They're we'll get you that money them. tomorrow, knowing that it's rock solid and we'll get paid whenever it actually comes through eight, 12 months from now. That's is things as simple as that. I think there's there's so many more opportunities in the in the IRA to to dig through. Yeah. And 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 just to drop another resource uh to your listeners, uh, Rewire America, your yeah. listeners haven't heard of is a great resource. It's a nonprofit and um, they really have done a good job of distilling down what the IRA is in terms of like, what, how can it apply to you as a homeowner, for example, and like, what are the credits that you can apply for? So I think as those types of, uh, services come online, this government money will become more useful. Actually, I, I was going to say like, how important is knowing the government landscape going to be over the next 10 years? Or I don't know, Karen, you're, you, I feel like you, you. I, I want to hear your thoughts on this. Like, like, am, you know, like, I, I guess like the last 20 years of startup ecosystem mindset, at least in the United States is like, I'm private market. Let me just figure out how to get the private market where it works and whatever the regulators do, we'll deal with it later when we're big. And I, I wonder if that still applies now, or do we have to be more aware of the regulatory environment as we start a climate tech company in your, in your yeah. view? I'll, I'll put it this way. I don't think I can think of a single climate company that does not touch some regulatory agency, federal, state, you know, et cetera. And, and it's not like you could look at Salesforce and say, yeah, they sell software and they don't, they don't touch anything. Right. But it's so hard to think of a single climate company that doesn't in some respect. And so I think the, I think like a lot of our early success was because I worked in public policy and like mm -hmm. understood how screwed up our energy markets were and how utilities were. And I, yeah, so I think, I think it's like, I think you might even be a different set of founders that, yep. that are building these companies than the ones that were building like the software unicorns the last decade. What, what, one comment or one thought that I was having is I, I think the adage of like move fast and break stuff doesn't really work in our ecosystem. Like, like that might work for a consumer app where you could like just mess up and like try again it feels like if you're going into climate as a founder there needs to be some sort of forethought and like industry knowledge that you have to bring to the table in order to have a unique perspective right like you can't just like fail fast and like you might end up burning those key relationships if you do it that way too much right i'm not saying you shouldn't iterate and i'm not saying that mistakes aren't allowed but like it just feels like yeah, these are big games that we're trying to move, you know? Yeah, 100% agree. And I didn't have a background in politics or on the Hill or any of that. I didn't understand any of it. And when I started investing years ago, and I, you know, I don't think I, I had to learn so much in the last five to 10 years about it that has made it a huge difference. Like, I think K Street is sort of known for that because a lot of our investors do have that background. And that yeah. has changed. I mean, it's like the know. best city for... Yeah, it really, it really is. And, but then you, it's like, it really opens your eyes to where the opportunities are and how to take advantage of them. Um, and I do think that in the future, there's going to be a lot of 
educating regulators because we're building all brand new technologies that never existed before. I mean, they never existed. So like policies that's been written and regulation that exists doesn't apply. And the assumptions used in that aren't, you know, aren't going to work. So I think there's a lot more of that coming, but we'll see how that all. Uh, I was I was just in a this is a more EU applicable right now, but like I was just in a, in a session learning about some new data policy laws and the, the issue of IoT data and who really owns the IoT data because it wasn't data made by humans, right? And so copyright law doesn't technically apply. And so there's some interesting questions, you know, to to your point about like laws just not applying to, to modern tech and, and how they're merging. Yeah. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about buildings as power plants. So there's a lot of discussion right now about virtual power plants, basically putting solar on the roofs of commercial buildings, solar and storage. And I guess, Logan, if I think about, of course, focus on optimizing building operations, how do you perceive this concept and and what do you think it will look like in the future? So I I like the idea of buildings as power plants and sort of the virtual power plant concept. I think it's it it is an empowering concept. So just to give kind of like an idea right to your audience, because you have solar, because you have storage, and because you have data processing, you can basically sort of put all of these this combination of technology in a in your in your home and arguably your home will generate enough energy that you know it's net zero or at certain points you can optimize and sell back to the grid i think that's an amazing idea i think it could bring an abundance of cheap affordable energy and technically we have enough surface area right like i think i think the research that i did said that basically if all the homes had solar on it we'd generate enough solar energy to supply four times what the current real estate market demands so I, I think it could be a big game changer. And I like the idea of like new companies that are trying to disrupt the market could come in and they can kind of do this in a way that, you know, they don't get stuck in the sort of, uh, you know, the incumbent landscape. I, I think there's a ways to go. I can see it working faster actually in residential than in commercial in a weird way because commercial just has so many longer so, so sort of like more inertia in terms of how it does business and why it does business, but I could be wrong, right? I'm not, I'm not totally, I'm not totally sure about that yet. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that second point. So I've been working on this. This was like sort of my, my first company. We didn't call it a virtual power plant company, but it, it was, we, we would go to buildings, try to make them more efficient. The big, I mean, the big idea of buildings being tradable energy assets is, is right. I think Logan, you're right that these markets aren't liquid enough yet. It's not as easy. I think a lot of the value right now is with a building home or business managing its demand against its own utility costs okay. versus bidding into a wholesale market. Now, this is a little in the weed. Those rules are being written. It'll just take five to seven years for uh, the FERC to actually put them in place. But I'm, I mean, I'm super bullish. I think real estate over the next decade, I think almost every portfolio real estate business, and Logan, we've talked about this, like becomes an energy business in some respects. Like they can do so much on site. It matters to lowering their carbon. It matters to their fixed costs. 
And companies like Prologis and Walmart are, are and as, as major real estate holders, are spinning up energy teams with L's to, to make businesses out of it. So I, uh, it's definitely like we've had a hundred years of like not thinking about demand and just like building supply. And then like 10 to 15 years of thinking about, oh, we should manage how we use energy in a building. And so I, I just, it's, it's inevitable. It's just, you know, timing. And that's, that's what's true about all startups is getting the timing right. Yeah. 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 But I, I do really, it is exciting to see that large institutions like Prologus and Walmart are taking it seriously now. And they recognize that there is this sort of untapped potential that they have to differentiate their assets from other, you know, like it used to be that industrial warehouse was just an industrial warehouse and it was four walls and like it was a boring asset. Now there's like super interesting things that you could potentially do with it. And maybe you can differentiate from the other guy down the street now. And I think that's kind of, that's pretty powerful to see that some big, big players have acknowledged that. Yeah. I mean, just to, to piggyback on that, I mean, Prologis site can become resilient, battery storage, they can lower their costs with solar, they can add fleet EV charging, so their customers want that. There's there's just so much for them to unlock, enhances their business, right? It's like more electricity means more awesome stuff for most of most exactly. of these buildings. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think fi- finally, real estate people are kind of coming back to this idea of like, oh, wait, this is an asset that is supposed yes. to be utilized by people and asking the question, why is my space being utilized and how can it be utilized? And now that there's this idea of electrification, like what can I do to improve that? As opposed to just thinking about like an investment asset that, you know, you buy it and you put it in a spreadsheet for a couple of years and hope that it produces a return, right? But how and long I think do that's you, also exciting. How long do you think that transition will actually take? Because... I mean, as as much as that does seem like if I'm an investor and I invest in real estate, I would want to do this. But real estate, you know, as as we all know, is traditionally just extremely slow to adopt stuff, especially tech. <laughs> so I don't know. It'll be interesting to see if it actually truly does become this sort of hybrid energy real estate portfolio, all of them over time. I just think it's like this is like the decade for it. And there are big. I mean, Logan knows more about this than I do, but, you know, folks like Avalon Bay have energy and ESG teams, these big, like multifamily warehouse, big. So it's, if the big players are doing it um, now and understand the value, I think that'll start trickling down over the next decade. But that requires financing, requires, right, the right products, requires markets that, that can risk. So all those things I think need to develop as well. Yeah. But I, I like what you're, I like the takeaway that you just mentioned, which is like, this is the decade for it. I almost feel like I was too early when I started. And now it's like, I've just seen such a tremendous. So now, now you and I get to the benefit of calling ourselves OGs of the market a little bit, but like, you know, I've, I'm kind of excited to see what happens in the next 10 years, really. Like, cause there is, there's finally market pressure enough that people are spinning up these teams and putting real dollars to this, you know? Yeah. It's true. And I mean, even just like whatever, eight years ago, I didn't even, I was not a fan of climate tech at all, or I didn't even think it mattered. (laughs) So it's just the whole, I think there's just a shift generally for all people that are involved in business um, about this topic. So I hope it will be the decade. Um, We'll see. But I want to touch on one last thing. I know we're coming up on time here. So let's talk a little bit about SPACs um, in the climate tech space. 
And for those who don't know what a SPAC is, it's basically a shell company that gets listed on the stock exchange in order to buy another private company. And what that does is it makes the private company public by buying it uh, without it having to go through the expensive and time-consuming IPO process. So this has been a wild SPAC ride that we've all seen, but I'd love to hear your views on how it's evolving in the climate sector. I'll go first. I, I actually, the rise and fall, the more recently the fall of SPACs, like makes me really sad because there was at least the narrative that I bought in the early days was public market investors have been locked out of innovation and growth. And this is an avenue for public market investors to get in early and be long-term holders in the mm. innovations of the future and these massive TAMs. And what happened is a lot of companies that, you know, some of which may have been too early, not ready for the public markets, but the investors all sold out. Like none of them were actually long-term holders. I know. I think that's, that's part of it. If you could structure a SPAC in the right way where everyone's forced to hold for a longer yes. period, because that's the best. That would work so much better. Uh, of Agreed. course. Like, and they would have access to the public markets and access to financing for assets. So it's like, it's a little upsetting that the whole thing just became a financial trade for hedge funds versus like a real vehicle for like the next hydrogen or DAC company or, or what have you. Yeah. And I think that the idea of a SPAC gives you this idea of like, oh, wow, I can get, you know, the right amount of liquidity earlier. I can yeah. invest in a heavier, more durable product, longer standing. And that's exactly what climate is, right? Like they need these like longer term asset heavy type of investment vehicles. And I could totally see a SPAC being a good mechanism for those scenarios if the investment community treated it the right way as intended, as opposed to turning it into a trade. Yeah. Now, I, mean, I think we're I just think... dealing with the political backlash and the emotional backlash and all the other stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, I would love to see someone structure a SPAC in the way we're describing, right? Like, Me too. Like, that actually would be would it be worthwhile for the market or yeah, for accessing gaps? Hopefully, maybe 23 and 24 with the return to fundamentals, there'll be some more appetite for that now that the 2021 party is over. Yeah. Yeah, oh, I agree. We did a separate podcast on on this, not about stacks. And I think it's just hard because a lot of those investors are raising a ton of money and they are the, at a stage in their life where they don't want a long time frame. So it's trying to find the right investor profile to match this long-term future SPAC idea. Um, mm. We'll see how it evolves eventually. Um, so, oh yeah, I was go just going to yeah. ask, so you haven't, so I guess nobody's, I guess we're still in the dip, right? Like nobody's tried to revisit the SPAC concept. No, there've like, been a few. There was actually a there? solar company that just um, went public through a SPAC called uh, Complete Solar. Okay. Um, I have to look at that one. There's another one in Florida I'm blanking on the name of that's that's looking at it as well. Um, they're still out there. They're still happening, I guess. Yeah. Good. At a slower pace, maybe. But, yeah, at a much slower um, pace. That's for sure. Yeah. So I I guess this is the end and I, we're going to wrap up and I was going to say here in like question for you, because um, you've been with Arcadia for so long and I think about you and the, the journey you've been on and I'm just curious what is next for you and what you're excited about for Arcadia. Yeah, I mean, we it's post Inflation Reduction Act, 
it's just, it's hard to describe how exciting the next decade is going to be for all the work we're doing. We were, again, we work with companies across distributed generation, EV storage, and they're all benefiting from this industrial policy. And we sit in the middle of that. I mean, it's, it's incredibly exciting. Um, you know, I think we're a pure play software business and in climate and there's nothing like that in the public markets. So I think this can and should be a public company when the time's right. But yeah, it's just, a, it's just a, I mean, like to founders, it's like, there's actually money and Logan and I know how hard it was to fundraise for, for yeah. these companies years ago. There's incredible industrial policy, a regulatory policy that's backing uh, a lot of climate and amazing talent. Like everybody wants to be part of, you know, something that's fixing our, our climate problem, right? So there's no better time to, to start a company now. I think for investors, I'd still be wary of uh, price. I still see seed rounds that are like the price of my Series A. Ungodly. My Series B. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it blows my mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't. I think a lot of that hasn't come down to earth, but but I am seeing a lot more climate tech funds. Like I think there was this rise of climate tech. Um, I don't know, maybe ten, fifteen years ago, didn't do so well, kind of died out, and now it's back. Like it's a new epoch of things to invest in. It's a completely different environment for doing that, and we're seeing a mm-hmm. lot more players in the space, which I think is good because I think that means there'll be more more companies. Hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. I, I I think it's a great decade to be in climate. I think it will be a great decade. I think that I agree with everything Kieran said, just like great talent, great community also. Like, yeah. like you're not, you're not, even if you guys are competitive with, with other players, everybody understands the common goal. And so that creates a sort of a strong community of people that are willing to have conversations about what they're going through that can support, you know, early founders, which is exciting to see. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think, I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens. Yeah. Me too. And that's a wrap for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed it, please leave us a rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks.